Lord, we ask for your help this morning, um, especially with the, the topic at hand. We, we need grace, we need wisdom, we need discernment. Uh, Lord, we need a willingness to listen. Um, Lord, especially with uh, the challenge, Lord, of uh, the, the, the prevalence of uh, this uh, sexual activity all around us and even the potential of being caught up in it in so many different ways, Lord, just the battle rages. And Lord, we need guidance from you. We need wisdom that comes from above to help us to live our lives for your glory today. And Lord, I just ask that I, as your mouthpiece, would truly reflect your truth, and Lord, press it home to your people, but Lord, in a way that would reflect the tone of this book, and that we would be encouraged and strengthened by it, and Lord, tooled to be able to please you uh, with our lives. We ask this now in your name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. I think it would be very um, easy for us to conclude that we are living in America, and in particular in the Bay Area, in a very uh, sexually saturated society. In fact, if you go anywhere outside of California, or even to other countries, and you say, you know, if someone asks you, where are you from? We're from San Francisco. Um, there is a certain reputation that this area has around the world. And that's part of the sexual revolution that has taken place that in particular has flourished in this region. And of course, recently we've seen all sorts of things happen um, with uh, the, the whole sexual revolution. I think there's a re-revolution going on, especially with the LGBTQ stuff that's taking place. And um, God has, though, called us not to run to the hills and hide. He's called us to live our lives for his glory in that kind of context. That's what we are to do. And that ultimately, friends, is what the Thessalonian church was called to do. And, and as we come to this text, I want to I remind you of some things that we've already learned in this letter, because it's important that we, we read our text in light of the context of the book. I want you to notice um, a few expressions here. I want you to notice that he identifies the believers here and throughout this book as brothers. Now, this is really important. Because if we don't have a right understanding of this, we just jump into this text. The conclusion that we're going to come to is that this word brothers is just referring to the men. But in, in Paul's letter to the Thessalonian people, the word brothers doesn't, isn't limited to them. It's actually an, an affectionate expression of the whole community of believers. Which means that the instructions that are given here are directed to the body as a whole. And friends, that's important for us to recognize. For example, think of it in these terms. If I was in youth ministry and I said, all right, all the guys over here and all the gals over here, you'd understand that distinction, right? But if I had them in a group, you know what I would call them? Hey, guys, follow me. And you would know that that was referring to everyone in the group. You follow? It's the same kind of thing that's going on here then with Paul. He's identifying the whole group, and that helps us then even to interpret then what we're going to see in this text. Secondly, I want you to, to be reminded that even in this first verse, notice it says, finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. So Paul, yes, is responding to a report that Timothy has given him from his recent trip to the Thessalonian people. But he's not condemning them. He's saying, you've been doing a great job. You've listened to our teaching. You've followed our instruction. There's evidence of, of, of life and, and love and labor for the glory of God. So the things that he is going to now say are not to put the people down. They're, they're words of encouragement and command to help a church that is doing a great job do an even greater job. 
And so there's, a, there's an angle and there's a tone that is going on here. It's not somehow punitive at all, but it's encouraging, it's supporting, it's preventative, you might say. And of course, understanding that the Thessalonian people were living in a Hellenistic culture, and we'll get to that a little bit more, we understand that they were then saved out of a very sexually saturated lifestyle. And of course, if that is true, they have entered into a new relationship with Christ, but they still have lingering habits and effects from that old lifestyle, which is real, which is true. So, this morning, I would simply like to lay out a proposition for us relating to this text. First of all, let's just put it this way. Paul encourages us, having read this passage, to keep on seeking to please God by taking seriously our identity in Christ that shapes and fuels our sexual ethic. Now the point here is this, that we all have sexual ethics. The question is, what fashions and shapes those sexual ethics? Is the culture gonna do that? Or is this new community called the body of Christ that is fed by the truth of the word of God, that is breathed out by God, that is present because of the ministry of the Holy Spirit, is is that what is going to feed us and fuel us in determining what is healthy and right and good? Or is simply the culture going to do it? Are the morals of the culture or the immorality of the culture going to do that? We're being challenged here to keep on. So friends, if I could say it this way, Gateway, you are a great church, but we are living in a sex-crazed culture. And God wants us to be honest about our struggle with this topic. But at the same time, to not be discouraged, but have a plan, and a plan that is rooted in his truth. Because this isn't going away until the Lord returns and calls us home. This is the kind of society we're going to live in. You say, well, today it's far worse than it used to be. It it used to be had its own issues, had its own struggles in this arena. But we certainly see it more on the outside today than I think we have ever before. So let's begin by looking at the the structure of this text. Basically, there's two parts to this text. Verses 1 through 2 really are an introduction. And they're an introduction to the whole of the rest of this book. But then we also have verses 3 through 8 that are really getting into this subject then of this sexual immorality issue and problem that the Thessalonians are facing. But we want to look at it really in three parts this morning. So I want to challenge us and and ask you to consider to keep on pursuing your walk with God. That's what he's saying here in verses 1 and 2. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God. In other words, we gave you instruction. We gave you commandments. We showed you what God said that you should walk and please God. Now, note though, this is a transition. This is a transitional text, meaning chapters one through three were very personal and reflective. If you remember, Paul wanted to to go back to Thessalonica. They They were persecuted out of the city. And they wanted to go back. And so he, he loved these people so much. They were on his heart so much that, that he and Silas said, Timothy, why don't you go back and find out what's going on with this church? And so Timothy does. And, and Paul then reflects uh, on this relationship. And so it's important for us then to see that what we have here is a, a transition. And this is Paul's typical pattern, isn't it? He begins by laying out doctrine typically as a foundation, and then based on that foundation, what he typically does is he lays out instructions or commands. Now, uh, he, he does that in the book of Romans. For example, in the book of Romans, he lays out for 11 chapters the importance of of the gospel, just it's, it's deep, it's theology, lots of questions, lots of reasoning, and then he gets to chapter 12 and verse one, and here's what it says, verses one and two, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, 
by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God and what is good and acceptable and perfect. And then from then on, he gets into practical application of the things that he's just said. This also happens in the book of Ephesians. Again, he lays down what it means to be in Christ, and then in chapter four, it says this, verse one, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And then for the rest of the book, he lays out topic after topic where he fleshes out the importance of being in Christ in the life of a believer in various circumstances. Doctrine, application. Doctrine, application. He does that in the book of Colossians too. Again, he stresses the doctrinal uh, importance of the gospel followed by the practical implications of the gospel. Colossians 3.1, this would be the, the hinge verse there. If, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. And then he goes on with the practical. Now when we get to 1 Thessalonians, you say, well, wait a second, I didn't see all that doctrinal stuff laid out in this book. And you're right. Paul doesn't lay out doctrine and theology, but what does he do? He reminds them of the instruction and the doctrine and the teaching that he had taught them when he was there with them. So it's a, the chapters 1 through 3 remind them Constantly he's saying, just as you know, just as you were taught, just as we instructed you. And so all this doctrine is there. And this personal kind of reflective, affectionate side of the letter now turns and he's saying, now look, I have some things that I need to say to you based on the report that has come back to me. So first of all, it's a, it's a transitional text. Secondly, it is an appeal. And I want you to notice, first of all, the nature of the appeal. There's this, these words, ask and urge. All right, brothers, we ask and we urge you in the Lord. The idea of ask means to, to make a request, but it's not a suggestion kind of an ask. It's a, it's a strong request to take action. It's like a mom asking a child to clean their room. Well, you asked me and I decided to say no. That's not what mom meant. All right? It's, a, it's, a, it's a stronger than, you know, you have a choice. No, this is, this is what I'm asking you to do. This is what you need to do. To urge and is to exhort, to compel and to encourage. And you'll notice that these two words are used carefully and purposefully throughout the rest of the letter. Chapter 4, verse 10, chapter 5, verse 11 and 12, and verse 14. And so these two words, uh, when they are, are, are put together, describes Paul's appeal for the Thessalonians to put into practice what they have been learning. So I'm asking you to do this. I'm, I'm urging you to do this. Secondly, I want you to notice the content of the appeal. What is he asking and urging? That you will walk to please God. Now, you, you probably heard that in some of the other transitional passages that I read, that you walk in a manner worthy, right? The whole Romans thing, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, right? It's a sacrifice of, of worship. It's, it's, it's this, this new perspective, this new kind of living, this new kind of pursuit. And so he's saying here that, he, that you are to, to live out of your identity in Christ. All these instructions that we've taught you are, are, are ways in which you through your life can please God. And it's what we're being called to do, to be learning God's truth and then seeking to apply that truth in a way that pleases God. Now this is general instruction for Christian sanctification or your Christian walk. The, the metaphor of walk does at least conjure up in us a journey that is ongoing a journey that is taking place, and there's going to be on that journey some difficult paths. There's going to be some mountains that you need to climb. There's going to be some hills or some, some valleys that you're going to go down, some difficult pathways, some obstacles that might even be in the way. But there's also going to be the enjoyment of, of climbing a mountain and seeing things that you haven't been able to see before. 
This is our walk. And it's a beautiful, challenging, God-centered, God-glorifying walk. But there's also a specific instruction that he is emphasizing here for a specific struggle that we as the church or you as an individual may be facing. In the rest of the letter, Paul's gonna deal with a number of different subjects. He's gonna deal with subjects that come from questions or concerns or observations that Timothy has made. He'll address sanctification, which is what we're gonna look at today. He will address brotherly love. He'll address the hope of believers who have died in the Lord. I mean, are they gonna be left out of this glorious return of the king, or are they going to be present and active in it? He will address the times and the dates of the Lord's return or the inability to actually know those things. And then he's going to address some general congregational matters. So the big picture here and the point of this text is for us to realize that our journey to please God is rooted in our willingness to learn from and to listen to and apply what we are taught from God by his spirit through his word. Life application or life change is always an outgrowth of a well-understood theology of living. And it comes clearly out of the expression of the word of God. So you cannot bypass God's word to get to application. When you seek to get to application without going through God's word, it's not application. It's man's human thinking that might be fashioned and shaped as biblical application, but true application has to go through the word of God and then lived out in the life of the believer. So true living that pleases God is rooted in his word. So if you have a carefree attitude toward growing in your understanding of God's word, you will likely have a carefree attitude when it comes to living to please God. And conversely, if you have a serious attitude toward growing in your understanding of God's word, you will likely have a serious attitude to living to please God. The knowledge of God's word, however, hear this, is not the end in itself. Knowledge puffs up, but it is the application, it is through this knowledge that we come to see what God desires, what he expects, and what he counsels us to do, but we must do it, we must apply it, we must seek to to flesh it out in the context of the life that we are living. So that is an encouragement to all of us to keep on pursuing our walk with God generally and then specifically as we come to these topics. To press on even though we're feeling overwhelmed or ill-equipped. You ever felt overwhelmed or ill-equipped? All right, It's, it's, it's an encouragement to press on even if those around you are living to please themselves rather than please God. Are we living in that kind of culture? Of course we are. It's an encouragement to press on knowing that God is still at work in bringing about your maturity. So keep on, keep on pursuing your walk with God. Secondly, keep on obeying the will of God. It's like, oh no, not the word obey. Oh no. I mean, that's just, ah, that's just kind of a heavy word, Pastor Rod. You know, get with the times. We don't use the word obey. Um, well, God seeks to use that word, and I, I think it can be abused. Yes, I recognize that. Uh, but Paul views the instructions that he passed on to the Thessalonians not merely as, as principles to be followed, but rather as nothing less than expressions of God's will for them. So these instructions although I may present them eventually as principles, are commands for the Thessalonians to follow. Notice verse three, for this is the will of God. Now, there are a lot of people, especially young people, it's like, I wanna figure out what God's will for my life is. But let me tell you something. God's will for your life is actually pretty clearly revealed in God's word. There's lots of things that God says very clearly, this is what I want you to do. Usually we think of God's will, it's that kind of mystical thing out there, and we're, we're trying to figure out these nuances and that kind of stuff, and, you know, does God want me to go to this university or study this particular topic or this particular major or marry this person, and we're looking for kind of extra-biblical fuzzy-wuzzies that will come along and, and kind of Im- 
impact us. Oh, you know, I went up and I saw a cloud and it was in the shape of this girl's head. And, you know, it's that, and we'll put a lot of stock in that. But notice what it says here. Paul says, this is the will of God. So what is the will of God? Your sanctification. That's what he's saying here. So there's, there's no question here about, oh, I wonder if this is really what God means. I mean, let me go up to a mountain and ponder this. No, it's very clear. It's right there in front of us. This is the will of God. Now we need to think through this word sanctification. Uh, sanctification here is the activity of faithfully obeying God's instructions and therefore living to please God. It's the word hagiosmos, which also is translated as Holiness, oh no, not another bad word, Pastor Rod. What's that? Obedience and holiness in almost the same sermon? Crying out loud. What are you doing to us? This is oppressive. It's not oppressive at all, friends. See, unfortunately, the word holiness in our contemporary church as well as in our society is viewed as a negative concept. It's usually understood as separation from things or the keeping of rules and regulations. If you ask people, what does holiness separate us from? Many people will answer, anything fun. And that's just the way it's turned out, right? But that's not true. For Paul, the idea of holiness or sanctification is a positive concept. It's a matter of becoming more and more like Christ. Is that a good thing? Right? It's, it's a matter of growing up in the faith. That's good. It's a matter of becoming mature in Christ. That's a, a good thing. So it's not a bad word. It's a good word. Now, the word sanctification is used in Scripture in three ways. They're up there for you to see them. There's positional sanctification. In other words, this is the moment of your conversion where God declares you righteous and you are holy, not because of anything that you have done, but because you are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. When God looks down at you, he looks through the garments of of Christ's righteousness and he says, you are holy. You are set apart. You are my child. That never changes. That is, a, that is a constant from that point on. So it's a positional truth. This is what it means to be in Christ. The first thing is I am in Christ, and that is eternal. Right? We talk about, you know, I got saved, and I got eternal life, and it lasted for 10 years. Huh? I thought eternal life was eternal. No, it is eternal. That's the point. This positional sanctification. Then there's progressive sanctification. This is the process that God walks us through by means of his Holy Spirit, applying the various disciplines that he reveals for us in his word, prayer and Bible intake and putting off and putting on. All of that is part of our progressively becoming more and more like Christ. And then there is perfect sanctification, which happens the moment we step into eternity into the presence of God. We will be in a perfected state. The the lingering, naggling presence of sin will be gone. Okay, now, having said all that, what's going on in this text? Well, the sanctification Paul has in mind in these verses is progressive sanctification. It's our life's pursuit to bring everything into conformity to his will. What we say, what we do, how we think, what we worship. But Paul has a specific issue here, and it's the issue of sexual immorality that he wants to address. And it will help us to take a moment again to define what Paul means by sexual immorality and to give it a context in Thessalonica. So this word... um, Sexual immorality comes from the Greek word porneia. You probably connect that to what we uh, call pornography, right? Um, it, is, it, it basically is any sexual or kind of sexual relationship outside the boundaries of heterosexual marriage. So it, it involves things like sex before marriage, adultery, homosexuality, incest, prostitution, um, Pornography, bestiality, I'm sorry I have to say all these things, but it's just the reality of what it is. The Thessalonian culture, though, was a sexually promiscuous culture um, where 
the goddess Aphrodite was the symbol of sexual freedom and the patroness of prostitutes. And so men could go to pagan temples and commit immorality with a priestess as an act of religious devotion. And so various forms of extramarital sex were tolerated, even encouraged in that culture. So consider the words of F.S. Bruce as he's, as he's kind of helping us walk through this text. He says, a man might have a mistress who could provide him also with intellectual companionship. The institution of slavery made it easy for him to have a concubine while casual gratification was readily available from a harlot. The function of his wife was to manage his household and be the mother of his legitimate children and heirs. I mean, so you're just talking about culturally speaking, the way it was all put together and the presence of sexual immorality was all around them and people were getting saved out of that culture. And so Paul is now coming and saying, we need to talk about the implications of that on the life of a believer. So it doesn't take much to recognize the parallels between Thessalonica and today. And like I said earlier, we're living in a highly sexualized culture where sex outside of marriage is flaunted. You see it on TV, you see it in advertisements, in movies, in music, in the way people talk to each other. I mean, the, the, the billion dollar sex industry is now pumping pornography through the internet. I don't have the stats, but you don't need the stats to realize that this is a daunting reality on our populace today. Sex trafficking is running rampant. It, it happens around us. We don't even know it's happening, but it's happening. When I was a child, if, if someone wanted to look for pornography, they had to be deliberate and to search it out and they had to often visit sleazy stores where you wouldn't want to be caught dead. Today you can pull out your smartphone and with a couple of clicks you're there. I mean, this is how times are changing. Sin is sin. Culture has always been sinful. This, this presence of sexual immorality has always been around. It's just that the, 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 uh, the means to get to it is now far more prevalent and far more powerful. So these are dangerous times that we live in. Just like the Thessalonian church, we face a daunting, difficult task to live in holiness in the context of sexually saturated society. And friends, it's also important that we don't just view this as a male problem. This is also a female problem. Um, All I have to do is mention 50 shades of gray, and if you know what I'm talking about, you'll know this is a female problem too. And it's good for us to remember at this point, not to get beaten down, but to be, to be mindful that Paul's tone and his purpose is to be an encouragement and, and also to reflect on 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. Let me encourage you to turn there. 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 through 11. Here's what Paul says to the Corinthian church. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. But here's verse 11. And such were, past tense, some of you. And then he uses three expressions to describe our positional sanctification. He says, but you were, past tense, sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. You were washed. And so there's an encouragement here. If you're a follower of Christ, this is you. I'm not saying all the little statements that are in there, but maybe those statements do reflect you. The point here is this, that, that Christ comes and he makes us new. But although he makes us new, we all struggle with lingering habits of our old lives still niggle at us, even if we've been walking with God for years. So he wants to encourage, and he wants to challenge us, and he wants to give us some wisdom. And so what we want to do then now is just look at what Paul reveals then are three principles for honorable sexual ethics. Three principles, and I say principles, these are these are principles, they're, they're, they're instructions, they're guidelines, but they're also commands, okay? 
And it would do well for us to realize that. Now remember, again, these, this, remember the tone. He's encouraging them. He's giving them tools now to, to help them to navigate this territory. He says, first of all, that you abstain from sexual immorality. You say, well, do we have to have any more explanation on that? Well, maybe um, it's not just stay away, although it means stay away, right? Don't even come anywhere near it. Now, this comes across to many as rules, 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 and more rules. But friends, knowing where the boundaries are and staying within those boundaries brings about great freedom. Boundaries are good. Yesterday, my wife and I, we were traveling on Foothill Boulevard heading toward 580. And you know what happens there is cars come and at the last second they want to cut in front. And we were, we were on our way, and a car comes zipping by and just, I mean, didn't even kind of like go over and kind of turn. It just kind of cut right in front, and, and we're like, oh, man, you know, these people, what are they doing, you know? And then just, I mean, literally not even 10 seconds later, another car comes and does even more of a cutoff. My wife was driving, and she had, you know, sense enough or wherewithal enough to catch that and to kind of slow down a little bit, and we thought, oh, man, two of them. And we're getting close now to the, to the actual ramp. And there wasn't room now for a car, but a person's in the far lane. And they just like, we're going to all the way over. And of course, my wife applied um, her, her hand to the horn to scare them off. All right? Um, and she was actually wondering whether the horn was working well or not. It was working, okay? It works. All right? But the point here is this. There's a reason why you have rules on the road. It's not because society hates you. Well, they might, but that's a whole other thing, right? It's not because they just want to be mean, give you a hard life. No, it's because those rules and regulations on the road provide safety for those who are traveling on those roads. Boundaries are good. Boundaries are helpful. Boundaries give us freedom. That's the principle here. It's the principle of freedom. It's not simply saying abstain, but understand in saying abstain, in saying there's a boundary in establishing what that boundary is, you have allowed yourself then to be free to live within the boundary. Does that make sense? The problem is that our sinful hearts left unattended are always wanting to push the boundaries. If you had teenagers, you know what I'm talking about. But you know what? If you look at your own heart, you know what I'm talking about. Man left to himself, who is not really kind of walking with God, maybe a believer, but they're just not like, you know, making it a priority. The natural tendency is just to kind of drift and push the boundaries. But boundaries, Paul says, are God's will. So sex, according to God, finds its perfect fulfillment only in the marriage relationship between a man and a woman. Sex is God's idea. He created it. And so it follows that we should not deviate from the parameters that he has established concerning it. So Paul's instructions here have application in our lives in so many ways. Know what the boundaries are. Stay away from the boundaries. Boundaries does not mean, okay, I'm going to walk as close as I can to the edge here and reach over. I mean, this is not basketball where you can jump out and catch the ball and throw it back in. Right, there's a boundary there, and, and the goal is not to get as close as you can. The goal is to say, you know what, even then I want to create a boundary and stay, stay myself away from the edge. Right, so stay away from the boundaries. You do whatever you need to do that glorifies God so that you can stay within the boundaries. So what does that look like? Well, just thinking through some ways this might play out. It means that if you spend a lot of time on the internet, that you need to have a plan. You're careful what kind of words you search on Google. I mean, there's just some natural smarts, right? And I realize that you know, there, there's some things that they do on there, some filters and stuff, but you gotta be wise. You have programs that will filter out some of the nasty stuff that might pop up in your screen. You're careful what kind of emails you open or, or what links you pursue. And you can be innocently doing stuff on the, and you know what I'm talking about. And you just gotta say, what's the plan? Know what your plan is. Know what the boundaries are. 
It also means that you establish principles and practices relating to your interaction with the opposite sex. You know what you'll do in a certain situation. You know what you won't do in a certain situation. You know how to back out of a situation in a way that would honor God and be respectful to the other person. You know where you will go and where you won't go, what is appropriate and what is not. But again, a heart that is wandering, that is not spending time with God is, is going to drift. It's going it's to fudge on some of those boundaries. It's going to be open up to some teasing. It means having a plan when you're watching something on TV or go to a movie that turns into something seedy. It means that either looking away or averting your eyes in some way, shape, or form or physically removing yourself from a situation where you know you might be tempted, whether it's at a, at a pool, at a beach, or someplace that you know may not be healthy. It could even happen at the gym. So friends, the point here is this. Principle number one is the principle of freedom. Love the boundaries. Be thankful for the boundaries that God has given you. And live within them freely, joyfully, with a clear conscience. Now, abstaining from sexual immorality is one, only one part of Paul's counsel. And it's worth saying this, that the, the just say no mentality is good, but it's not sufficient. It's only one aspect of things. So absence alone is not the solution, but it's part of some ways that glorify God when it comes to sexual issues. So now Paul adds a second principle, and the second principle is self-control. That each one of you know how to control his body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. Now before we get into this principle, I, I want to address the fact that there are two typical interpretations um, of this passage in two ways that these words have been translated. And the two words I'm talking about are the words control and body because in some translations you have possess for control and you have vessel or wife being described for um, that word body. And so the first view, uh, well first of all understand this idea, this word actually means that's translated to wife or body is the word vessel. And so it's important for us to realize that what's going on here is Paul is actually using a, a figurative term, a metaphorical term um, to make his point. So the question is, okay, it was, he was using the word metaphorically, but the question is how? So some choose to translate the word wife. In this sense, Paul is saying uh, to the Thessalonians, listen, if you want to protect yourself if you want to avoid sexual immorality, then find your sexual fulfillment within the marriage relationship. So it's unique, specific instruction for um, marriage. Okay? The other sees Paul's metaphor as body, as it's translated here in the ESV. And viewed this way, Paul is telling the Thessalonians that abstinence from sexual sin is tied directly to how well they control their bodies. In other words, Pleasing God means saying no to the flesh. Or stated differently, we must control our bodies and, now, and, and not allow our bodies to control us. Now, as I understand this passage, and as I look at the context of the book, I come to the conclusion it's this last interpretation that what's being talked about here is not wife, but it's talking about body. And it just one reason is simply how Paul uses this word brothers in the context of the book. He's speaking to the church as a whole. He's not just speaking to men. He's speaking to women also. Men need to learn how to control their bodies, but women also need to learn how to control their bodies. This is a universal truth for the body of Christ, okay? So to control our body means that we know our own bodies, how our sex drives uh, function, what weakens our self-control, what strengthens our self-control. It involves admitting temptations that we can handle or avoiding those enticing situations. It means that certain conversations with coworkers might lure us. It means that some friendly touches may be too personal and therefore we should avoid those situations. It means, again, knowing how our body works. And by body, I mean not just the physical body, but, but our thinking process, our emotional state, all of who God has made you to be. 
So it means knowing how to take every thought captive, knowing that we live uh, or how to live a disciplined life for God's glory. It means knowing uh, that we don't allow our feelings to rule us. We allow the word of God and his truth to rule us. It means that if we knew to, we, we, like Paul says, we beat our body into submission so that we're not disqualified from the rights. These are all honorable and holy attitudes, actions and pursuits, These reflect a commitment to Christ and the change that he is working in our lives. Now, in contrast, notice verse five. Not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. What's he getting at there? He's saying the Gentiles, those who are unbelievers. He's not talking just simply about Gentile people group. He's using this expression saying there's believers, there's unbelievers. These Gentiles, they are passively driven by the passion of lust. In other words, they don't even think about it. They just, lust and and sexual desire is just just passive, it's there. It's driving them, it's motivating, it shapes how they think, it shapes what they do. They are mastered by their sexual desires and they would say that they're not, but they are. That's what he's saying. And the reason for this is that they don't know God. And he's saying, but you do know God. You're not animals that just function out of instinct. You are God's children who function out of the fact that you are Christ followers. That's why Paul, again, reminds us in Romans 12:1 to present our bodies as living sacrifices, as, as, as the means by which we are going to worship him. So God calls us to worship him by using our bodies in a way that conforms to his will and brings him pleasure. Whether that's our thoughts, whether that's our actions, whether that's our words. Again, 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20 says this, or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with the price So glorify God in your body. So, since God created us, we are duty-bound to honor him by seeking to live our lives in holiness before God and not driven by sensual passions. All right, so we have this principle of freedom, this principle of self-control, and here's the third one. The principle of, I'm calling it devotion. You have abstinence, you have self-control, and now devotion. Let's read verse six, at least the first part. That no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter. What's Paul getting at here? The word transgress means to go beyond the boundaries. In this context, to have a sexually immoral encounter with someone. The word wrong literally means to take advantage of, to exploit someone, to have something that is not yours. So with that in mind, let me make a few observations. This is a relational statement. This is talking about the relationship of the believer in particular with other believers. Reminds us that sexual sin is not a private activity involving one or more to uh, consenting adults. It has an impact on our relationship with God and with other people. When you sin sexually, you're actually sinning against others, even if they are consenting. You can have two consenting adults, and they're both married to different partners, but they're consenting. Consenting doesn't make it right in God's eyes, okay? That doesn't solve the problem. It is still sin in his eyes, It's not just a a relational statement, it's also a matter of respect for one another. When God's people are sexually immoral, they show their disrespect for others. Not just the person with whom they've had sex, but all the people who are related to them. You know, the, the moment and the passion might be so strong, and so the 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 mind and the heart are not thinking biblically, and you're not concerned about all the rippling effects. And what he's saying here is, listen, one of your checks, one of the principles is, 
Do you love this person? Do you respect this person? Are you devoted to their, um, to their life flourishing as a result of you backing off on any temptation you have? Okay, and this is really important. This is also a matter of love. They show by their actions they really don't love that person. But of course, in particular, this happens with young people, but not just young people. You know, if you love me, you would fill in the blank, right? No, if you love them, you won't. Love says, no, I don't want to put you in a situation where your reputation is tarnished or, or your future is destroyed or that I have violated my, uh, your relationship with God and your family and your parents or whatever that might be. It's saying, I love you enough to say no. So it all has to do with how we view one another. But in today's world, this sexual immorality has really to do with what I want and another person is really the object of my gratification. Whether it's physical or whether it's on a screen, that person is there to do my bidding. But Christ says, no, 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 no. Let no one transgress. Let no one wrong his brother in this matter. Now let's just think a little bit about the subject of pornography for a moment. I want you to remember whether it's, I'll, I'll come at this from a guy's perspective, but this is not limited to guys. Just remember that that girl on the screen is someone's daughter. Remember that that girl on the screen is being exploited by someone. She may be consenting to do it. She may be eager to do it. She may be making money to do it, but she is still being exploited to do something that is unnatural. And when you click, you are participating in that exploitation. Remember that the girl on the screen is blind, is in bondage to sin, and needs Christ. And every time you are pursuing this, you are putting a callus on your heart for evangelism for the sake of your own selfish gratification. I just think through that whole thing. You know, maybe one of the reasons why Christians don't evangelize as much as they should is because we've calloused our heart with the sin that is so prevalent in our society. We're called to be devoted to one another in Christ and when God's people are devoted to one another and to all mankind who are made in his image, when they see each other as God's creation, they will value them as people and not just as objects of their sinful desires. Sexual sin is saying to God, I don't care if I sin against you, I also don't care if I cause this other person to sin against you. So now Paul gives us two reasons why these instructions are really important. All right, let's just consider them. First of all, um, you, know, you, 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 you may be one, or people might, you know, might view Jesus as you know, gentle, meek, and mild, but what does this text tell us? It says, the Lord is an avenger of all these things. And by, if you do the interpretation, this Lord is referring back to Jesus Christ who's identified as Lord in this passage. He is an avenger. My friends, that is not some light-hearted activity. He brings justice. He takes vengeance. I like how John Phillips thinks when he says, God has written no trespassing over every man or woman who is not one's own wife or husband. He's also posted the warning trespassers will be prosecuted. See, we don't think that's the case. We're like, you know, I'm going to do this and I'll get forgiven. Let me shake you up a little bit here. Jesus is an avenger. And Paul's speaking to believers. He says, does that mean I lose my salvation? No, what it means is that regardless of the theology of your position as far as eternal security and all that kind of stuff, you should be shaking in your boots because what you are doing is an offense to Jesus Christ himself. And you will be held accountable for it. 
Secondly, not only is Jesus an avenger, but he says, for God has not called us to impurity. What does he mean by that? He means you're a Christian. I have called you out of darkness into light, not so that you can go back into darkness. I've called you out of bondage and given you freedom, not to place you back in bondage. This is, this is what I've done for you. You are a follower of Christ. That's what Christian means. And as such, the gospel has radically changed us, and we're not called for impurity, but we've been called to holiness. In other words, to live a life that is progressively becoming more and more like Jesus Christ. Now, hear this. Paul's not saying, you know, fall on your face, you, you violate these principles, your life is over, you know, it's, you, you know, your relationship with God is done. He's not saying that. You're not losing your salvation here, but he's putting the weight down, saying this is serious. And sexual sin does have community implications, has corporate implications, has family implications, has relational implications, has disease implications. You can go down the list of the natural consequences of sexual immorality and the, the beauty then of saying, I'm staying within the boundaries. But God does forgive, but those consequences remain. So I want to encourage you to keep on pursuing pleasing God. I want to encourage you to, to keep on obeying the will of God, but I also want to encourage you to keep on heeding the warning of God because this is how this passage ends. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. So this is this call to live a holy and pure life in sanctification in the context or as it relates to sexual purity. First of all, I want you to notice He's challenging them, saying, listen, it's possible for you to disregard God's will. He's drawing a line in the sand, and he's saying to please God means to live a pure life. Rejecting God means to live an impure life. He's saying you have a choice as a follower of Christ, obedience or disobedience, embracing God's will or ignoring God's will, obeying God's will or disobeying God's will. Jesus says, John 14, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. He says a little later, the one who doesn't love me will not keep my words. This is not just speaking to your behavior, but to the orientation of your heart. And, and, and I think this is where we have to recognize the tone of what Paul is saying to the Thessalonians. He's not saying that, that falling flat on your face in this area of sexual immorality, especially when you understand the context from which they have come and the context that they're in, that this ends now your walk with God. But he's saying, I want the orientation of your heart to be me and to be pleasing me, and to be following my will, and paying attention to my warnings. Forgiveness will be granted, yes. But look, the habit of life is that a follower of Christ will keep his commandments. And friends, when there's a, there's a coldness to what God commands, what he warns or counsels, we are in very dangerous territory. So it disregards the will of God. It also disregards the resource of God. And of course, that resource is the Holy Spirit himself. Again, let's read. It says, therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. And you say, well, how does that all fit? Well, it's worth noting that in this text, we have God the Father, God the Son, Jesus Christ, and God the Holy Spirit all mentioned and so in particular, in this, in this challenge, in this struggle, there is this, this presence, there's this activity of the Godhead working for us, and in particular, the Holy Spirit working in us. So it is God who establishes the boundaries of our sexual activity, and it is the Holy Spirit, God himself, 
who lives in us and helps us to do what God has called us to do. So he is our teacher. He is making known to us the scriptures or reminding us of what is there. He is our counselor who walks alongside us as we seek to live our lives for him. He is our guide who is convicting of us, uh, us of our sin or, or alerting us to temptation or reminding us of his word. And if you remember, when we're saved, we are sealed by the Holy Spirit. That's like a, an engagement ring that guarantees that when the Lord returns that we are going with him as his bride. But if we reject the Holy Spirit, we run the risk of quenching the Holy Spirit, putting out his influence, his fire in our lives and in our walk toward Christ. It means that we grieve the Holy Spirit. So this is the warning, friends, that if we disregard what, what, what God is saying here, we are potentially squeezing out the Holy Spirit's presence and activity in our hearts. And friends, you don't want to do that. You want the Holy Spirit to be free to do his thing and to convict you of sin and to show you what is right and to help you as you struggle. You need him. You need him and you need him active at work. Now let me bring things to a close here with two final thoughts. Number one, I want to give you a word of encouragement. I want to, I want to think through the, 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 the principles that have been laid out here and I actually want to I want to kind of put some together, and I'll put it this way. First of all, there's a, there's a vertical uh, relationship that needs to be pursued. So you're like, well, you know, what if I'm struggling? How, you know, or what if, what if this is an area that, you know, I'm just really being challenged with? I want to put it this way. There's vertical, there's an, an internal, there's an external, and there's a relational kind of activity that's taking place. But what we see in this passage is that it teaches us that the beginning and at the end of this battle has to do with how well we are cultivating our vertical relationship with God. The, the, the point here is this. If, if you're a man and you're struggling with pornography, you can use tools that are available to you so that you, you won't pursue pornography, but that can't happen, and it's not going to happen effectively unless you are walking deliberately and purposefully with Christ. That you're seeking to please God, that you're seeking to listen and to, to obey his will, that you're, you're daily spending time with him and you're sensitive to his Holy Spirit. If, if that is something that you've brushed aside, which often happens when people are pursuing sexual immorality, they'll say, I don't want God. Why? Because they don't want the conviction. They don't want his, his counsel. They don't want the reminder of scripture. They just want that they want. And so when you remove this vertical relationship you are, you're, you're opening the door now to, to things unraveling very, very quickly. So are we living to please him or are we disregarding what he says and, and what he desires? Are we embracing the ministry of the Holy Spirit or have we gotten to the place where we have stiff-armed his counsel and presence? Are we thankful for his ongoing ministry in our lives or are we no longer allowing him to convict us counsel us or to encourage us to do what is right. So the best antidote for sexual sin is the life of a believer that is walking with God. And it might seem like, well, you know, read your Bible, pray every day. I'm not talking about read your Bible, pray every day. I'm talking about walking with God. Now just look at the list here. There's a reason I put it in this order. Get your vertical relationship going, establish that. Get your reading, you know, spending time in prayer, making sure that you're thinking healthy thoughts. And that's why you know, some, a place like Philippians 4.2 is helpful. I don't want to wrench it out of its context, but he does say, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. So this, this is a vertical kind of a, a orientation now. Secondly, there's the internal. Understand your body. Understand how you work, where you struggle, what are the triggers or the things that set you off to go down the path of actually 
being teased by sexual immorality in whatever form it comes at you? Do you know yourself? Now, you know, you, you might say, well, yeah, I, I'll talk with my spouse. Your spouse may know, but you know yourself better than your spouse does in this area. And are you willing to say, this is how I struggle. These are the places that I struggle. These are the ways that I struggle. And then having, having done that, you can move then to the external, which would be the boundaries. And you begin with God's boundaries. Psh, this is what God says, and here's the line. Here's where his line is. But because I know my struggles, guess what? My line's actually gonna be a little tighter than where God's line is. We have to know ourselves. We have to apply God's truth to our particular situation and where we struggle and where we fail. And then relationally, being devoted to the dignity and flourishing of others, do we love them? Do we respect them? So friends, this is a word of encouragement just to say there is kind of a plan here that he's laying out for us as we face this struggle. But there's also a word of warning. And the word of warning may not be what you're expecting. The word of warning is this. Sometimes we're, we are our own worst enemy when it comes to fighting sexual sin. And this, this is not just sexual sin, this could be other things too. I mean, let's just think of it in these terms. Let's just say that you, know, you have, you have a, a real problem with ice cream. Right? I use that because we all do, right? All right, good, we're all done with that one. Um, and, and you're like struggling with ice cream and you're like, oh man, I love some ice cream right now. Oh, I'm thinking, you start thinking about all the different flavors. And, you start going online and looking, you know, Baskin and Robbins and looking at all the different things and how it's made and, and maybe other menus online and just pictures of it. You're like, oh, this is so good, you know, but I haven't eaten any yet. But boy, I'm thinking about it. Now, my, 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 my caution here is this, and this is the warning, and I've, I've put it up there in, in this, set, this way. Don't be so transfixed with, fixed with sin and be transfixed with God. In other words, we can be wanting to fight against sexual sin so much that all we're thinking about is our fight with sexual sin. And if that's all we're thinking about, then what are we doing? We're still filling our minds with sexual things that continue to tease us and continue to shape us and continue to fashion us, all right? And so there's the need then to, to, yes, you need to deal with that, but that's not gonna be the whole picture. There are other things that are far more important. And so it's not just, oh, you know, get that image out of your mind. It's replace that image, replace those thoughts, replace those desires with things that are healthy, that are honoring to God. But there's another warning that comes with that. Here's part of the, part of the problem also, is that if we, if we are so transfixed with, with, with sexual immorality, there's also the, the possibility that it will affect the healthy relationships that God has given you. In other words, listen, around us in this church, we have men and women. God has called the church to be a united body. We don't want segregation between uh, the genders here. You know, the, here, the ladies hang together here and the men hang together here. There should be a Christ-honoring warmth and affection that is experienced by God's people in his church. But if we are so consumed with, with the, the, these, these sexual struggles or these, this sexual kind of mindset, every kind of encounter with the person of the opposite sex now becomes this kind of a, a sexual thing. And, and now we, we, we've ruined, we've got, it's, allowed our, it's allowed itself to get in the way of, of, of natural, healthy relationships. Now you've got to be wise there. This goes back to boundaries, you know. If you're going to hug someone from the opposite sex, hey, there's, there's a hug and then there's a hug. You know, I mean, if, if you're lingering, you know, unlinger. You know, just if you want to say, you want to say hi, you, you know, you do a side hug or something like that. Now, we talked about this in different cultures, how different people do stuff. But, but the point here is this, that we don't, we don't want this struggle, although it's real, to be so consuming to us that it's all we think. And now that it's affecting us, oh, I've got to talk with this woman. Oh, no. Oh, oh, you know. That's not what we want. And the problem is that we have not then, because of the sexual presence in our culture, developed a healthy pursuit of how do we actually interact with each other as men and women in a way that glorifies God. You see what I'm saying? This is the warning. This can undermine us um, even as we're trying to do something honorable for God. Friends, 
Pursue your relationship with God. He's called you to live in this world. He hasn't called you out of it yet. But make him central. Make your walk with him the priority. Know yourself. Be honest about that. See the, the boundaries for what they really are and, and, and consider how you relate to those boundaries. And, and you know what? Just be purposeful not to go beyond those things. And then when you look around, love those who are the people that God has put in your life. Respect them. Be devoted to them by being committed to not violate anything with them. Honor them by lifting them up before the Lord Jesus Christ as a fellow brother and sister. Lord, help us today. These are hard words. These are helpful words. And Lord, we know that you, through your apostle, love these these, these people so much that you brought a word through him to help them in their predicament. People who were doing well, people who were living for you, but yet the, the, the presence and, and the, the, the influence, Lord, of, of the old life or the culture around the Lord still very real. And Lord, the, these counsels, these, these instructions, these guidelines, these principles, Lord, are things that not only help them, but help us to live our lives for you. Lord, I know that in a room like this, there are people who are definitely struggling with this. This could be an ongoing habit of pornography in the life of someone. This could be a, 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 a teasing relationship at work that has gone beyond what is appropriate. This could be someone who is struggling because they have been uh, taken advantage of, the, of themselves, and they're still struggling with the implications of all those things and wanting to, to figure out how do they navigate this world with you? How do you view them? And Lord, we are your children. We are imperfect. And Lord, we are broken. But Lord, we have, been, we have been brought out of all that brokenness into your presence, into your body, by your gospel, and we have been changed and now, Lord, give us strength and wisdom and power to live our lives for you and to encourage one another to do that. And Lord, may we not be beaten down by the culture, but Lord, may we be the ones who are impacting the culture with the gospel for your glory. We ask these things now in your name. Amen.